Welcome to another T-Rex Talk. Today I want to talk about uh, House Resolution 1808 that uh, was essentially a resurrection of the Clinton-era assault weapons ban. And I was going to record this podcast yesterday, but I'm glad that I waited because there's actually news about this today. Essentially, Nancy Pelosi is not going to bring H.R. 1808 to a vote, uh, at least not this month, possibly in August. And the reason that she's not bringing it to the floor for a vote is because she doesn't have the votes to pass it. Now, my personal theory is that this bill is dead because it was killed by Eli Dicken. At the same time that Eli Dicken killed the Indiana mall shooter, he also killed several pro-gun confiscation arguments, and uh, that's why there's not the votes to pass this bill. Well, the other reason is that it's election time, and essentially, H.R. 1808 is very much like the 1994 assault weapons ban in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, it, It really does incredibly similar things in incredibly similar ways. It bans the sale of all semi-automatic rifles and shotguns that are equipped with features like pistol grips and flash suppressors and adjustable stocks and barrel shrouds and threaded barrels and things like that. And it bans a whole bunch of guns specifically by name, uh, just like the 1984 assault weapons ban, but it, it bans more guns by name and it bans a whole lot of pistols very specifically by name. Uh, and it exempts a whole bunch of automatic Uh, shotguns that I'm assuming members of Congress own. That's possibly the reason why auto-loading shotguns uh, that are exempted by name are so prevalent in the bill, uh, and then other types of weapons less likely to be exempted by name. So it's a more aggressive version of the 1994 assault weapons ban, which was really, really catastrophic for the Democrats. It really cost them an awful lot of votes. And given that we have some pretty interesting midterms coming up, it wouldn't surprise me that a lot of Democrats are nervous. Uh, I've talked about this a bit in the past, I think mostly in the uh, T-Rex arms political newsletters, but essentially what we are seeing happen is a game of chicken in which the Democrats are trying to virtue signal to their base, to their most left-leaning voters that they really, really, really want to ban guns, and they need to demonstrate that they're doing something so that they can excite those guys to come out and vote. But they also don't want to do something that is so crazy that they're going to turn off centrist voters and stop them from coming out. But they also don't want to do anything so extreme that it outrages Republican voters and they come out to vote. So that's why you have them really pushing this bill in different committees so that they can get it out of the committees and count that as a win to really excite their base, but not actually put it into law because, well, the results of putting it into law would potentially be catastrophic. And if they don't have the votes to pass it, uh, a loss would be very demoralizing for the voter base. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, again, a game of chicken. But speaking of the committees, when this bill was being discussed in committees, uh, it was <laughs> it was a clown show. The House Judiciary Committee talked about it last week. There was a whole bunch of uh, testimony that was hilarious. There was a whole bunch of just incredible ignorance uh, and, you know, stupidity and, and outright lies and things like that, of course. But uh, the stupidity was pretty hilarious. Thomas Massey was outright laughing at some of the things that were said. Uh, he had some fantastic zingers. He launched a thousand memes. Uh, it was actually pretty funny. But 
I think that a much better analysis of this can be found in a newsletter that was sent out by Open Source Defense. If you're not subscribed to the Open Source Defense newsletter, you should be. And they actually make the point that for the people that the Democrats are currently appealing to, their really hardcore voter base, ignorance on the topic of guns is not a handicap. When they're making this very emotional appeal for gun control, it is in fact a strength. The argument kind of goes like this. If you were talking about drunk driving and you were to point out, for example, that this year X number of families were killed by drunk drivers, this many children were killed by drunk drivers, and that's why we need stronger laws because people are out there driving under the influence of ardent spirits, they're drinking whiskey and they're killing small children, and someone said, actually, most of them aren't drinking whiskey, most of them are drinking gin. That person making the actually argument comes off as somebody who is completely missing the point of the debate and just being a jerk by pointing out little tiny technical details. For a lot of people who are watching this gun control debate, that is who they think Thomas Massey is. They think that the Democrats are making this strong, impassioned plea to save the lives of school children, and Thomas Massey is some kind of nerd who's like, Actually, that's not a bump stock, that is a stabilizing brace. They think that he is some kind of nerd trying to throw a wrench into a life-saving work. And I think that it's really helpful that uh, Open Source Defense has pointed this out. In many ways, depending on who you're talking to, the argument is being perceived as a totally different thing. Now, I would say that it is completely appropriate and correct for Thomas Massey to bring those things up when you are discussing passing legislation, because this whole facts versus feelings argument that we have in the cultural war and the public sphere and on social media, etc., it is really important that you kind of read the room, per se, or more specifically, know your audience and try to understand who it is that you're talking to and what they are actually talking about so that you can, you know, literally communicate with them. But when you are discussing passing legislation, which is legal code, words matter. And facts matter. And Thomas Massey is the guy who is in the right, who is saying, hang on a second, you are suggesting banning an item that you have no clue about. You're pointing to a stabilizing brace that is literally strapped to a guy's arm in that picture that you yourself printed out, or had a staff member print out, and are holding up, and you're trying to tell me that that is a bump stock. You are writing legal code that is indecipherable. It's going to have a massive effect on how people live their lives, and you don't even know the name of the thing that you're pointing at. In the House Judiciary Subcommittee, or full committee, that is absolutely the right argument to make, because you are debating actual legal code that is going to control people's lives. Thomas Massey is in the right, and all the idiots that are pointing to pictures of things that they don't know what they are, and making these insane outlandish claims about how 556 liquefies organs, and sometimes, after mass shootings, you can't even find the bodies because they have been totally disintegrated by these incredible incredibly powerful bullets. And by the way, I'm, I'm actually not exaggerating. Representative Lucy McBath said that same thing. This is not even something that she said on the floor in the spur of the moment and then repented of later. She typed this out as a tweet. There is a reason we never see the images after a mass murder. Many of the bodies no longer exist, period. That is an actual quote from Representative Lucy McBath on Twitter. Now, herein is where we really see the problem. A lot of these people are standing up in that judicial committee talking about legal code, but they're not having 
an in-house debate. They're not actually trying to pass legal code that is going to serve their constituents well. They are making their Twitter arguments on the floor of the House of Representatives. That is why they are leaning so heavily on feelings over facts, or in this case, dispensing with facts altogether. But the fact is, people have been doing this for a very, very long time. I remember uh, going to the Capitol when I was a kid and watching people make long, impassioned speeches to nobody, absolutely nobody in the Capitol building, but uh, the C-SPAN cameras are running and they're getting to be on television and they're able to give these speeches. And later on, their, their aides are going to get good clips of that and then send those to their local network affiliates and so they can look like they're actually doing something on the Hill, even though they were literally standing in an empty room making an impassioned plea that nobody would hear except the people that they sent the tapes to later. I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of the people who are making these arguments are not actually as dumb as they look. They are not losing an argument with Thomas Massey on the floor. They're actually ignoring Thomas Massey completely, and they're winning an argument with their mid-level base on Twitter by copying and pasting the clips that they actually think are going to play well with their specific demographic. Meanwhile, over on the right, we are watching Thomas Massey win an argument with people who are paying no attention to him whatsoever and uh, captioning it things like, Thomas Massey absolutely destroys Rhode Island congressman, etc. Now, I do think Thomas Massey was trying to have an actual <laughs> legislative conversation on the floor with his colleagues and engage their arguments as they presented them. And they talked right past him and tried to get their Twitter sound bites in. So let's ignore some of the crazy stuff that they said about bump stocks, uh, some of the crazy stuff that they said about the insane vaporizing power of 223. Let's ignore how completely out of touch they are with the historical understanding <laughs> of how weapons work. Uh, Jerry Nadler made the point that we're banning the Air 15 because it is a modern weapon of war, and we're not going to ban the M1 Garand because it is, quote, an ancient weapon. Now, it's true, M1 Garand is about 90 years old. However, AR-15, more than 60 years old. The stuff that Eric Swalwell said and the stuff that David Hogg said, yes, he was actually there. Uh, he had to be escorted out by security um, because of how incredibly unseriously he was taking the entire debate or even just the basic rules of decorum. So let's ignore all of that and let's look at some actual facts that people will, will talk about. There are graphs that you will see, and I'm going to try to find some of these and uh, post them. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways to, to graph this out. But one of the things that you graph out, whether you're graphing violence in America per capita, whether you are graphing uh, gun violence per capita, there is a massive drop. The drop of uh, the murder rate, the violence rate, the gun violence rate, whatever it is that you are actually graphing over time does actually drop in the early 1990s. And proponents of the assault weapons ban will point to that as proof that the assault weapons ban worked, that it actually caused gun violence in America to drop significantly. But one thing that I haven't heard too many people point out is that that 1994 assault weapons ban really only affected the sale of rifles and the manufacture of rifles. It didn't really affect pistols that much. Now, it did affect magazines for pistols. You weren't allowed to sell uh, standard capacity pistol magazines, but there were lots of standard capacity pistol magazines already floating around because they were grandfathered in. And there were lots of pistol companies making and selling the exact same pistols that they always had, just with smaller magazines. So given that 
the assault weapons ban of 1994 mostly affected rifles. And given that rifles make up a teeny, tiny, almost unmeasurable fraction of gun violence deaths in the United States, why on earth would the assault weapons ban have such a massive effect on the murder rate? I mean, as you probably know, if you're listening to this podcast, rifles kill way fewer people than pistols. They kill fewer people than knives. They kill fewer people than fists and feet. So banning the sale of certain rifles in 1994 would not result in a 30% drop of the murder rate. Rifles are barely represented at all in the overall violent crime rate, and yet there was a huge drop from the 1990s, early 1990s, through to about the year 2000. Claiming that this huge drop in violent crime, not just gun deaths, not just rifle deaths, but all violent crime happened because of the assault weapons ban is preposterous. But this is one of the facts in quotes, that is being trotted out to justify the passage of Bill H.R. 1808. Now, somebody sent me a comment, and I need to go back and listen to this podcast, but apparently um, the Freakonomics guys pointed out that what they believe this drop in crime is, um, they believe that this is caused by Roe v. Wade and legalized abortion. Now, I haven't listened to their reasoning, so I can't really make a specific case for it, but essentially they were saying that somehow... In 1972, when abortion was legalized, then in 1992, 20 years later, you see a sudden and precipitous drop in violent crime caused by a lack of 20-year-old men who would otherwise have been born if it were not for legalized abortion. I think this is a tremendous stretch, and I have some demographic reasons for that, and that is essentially that... Even though you see a tremendous drop in crime in the 1990s, um, you actually see rising crime in certain places, certain geographic regions. And uh, Planned Parenthood, if you don't know too much about it, Planned Parenthood places its abortion centers in specific geographic areas, specific socioeconomic zones, and where they perform most of their abortions are in the exact same areas where crime rates have risen disproportionately. So, yeah, not not seeing it. It is far too easy to grab random crime statistics, look at them through a certain lens or a certain categorization, or look at a gigantic basket of gun violence overall, and then apply what is normally a tiny, tiny sliver of that, say, rifle crime, and apply that to uh, a bill like 1808 and talk about the tremendous, incredible, insane death toll that uh, will immediately be solved if we just pass this crazy bill. So when you hear people talking about this bill, listen very carefully to figure out whether they are making an incredibly emotional appeal that this is going to save the lives of countless children, or whether they are making a faulty factual appeal to um, some crazy statistics, like the idea that the 1994 assault weapons ban somehow also saved an untold number of lives. Then you'll have a better idea of which way to actually engage the idea. And make no mistake, the conversation about this bill is going to come up again. It is going to keep happening. This bill is not actually completely dead. Uh, Eli Dickin was able to kill the Indiana Mall shooter completely dead. I'm afraid he was only to kill this bill 
temporarily. I have no doubt that it will be back. In fact, I feel like this bill actually is back. There is so much of this bill that reads exactly like the 1994 assault weapons ban that it feels almost hastily uh, put together. In fact, if you go down the list of weapons that it specifically bans, the following rifles, copies, duplicates, variants, or altered facsimiles with the capability of any such weapon thereof, it includes a whole bunch of weapons that you would expect, all AR types, including the following AR-10, AR-15, etc., etc. But it also has a whole bunch of guns like the Calico rifles and pistols. Um, there's a whole bunch of companies that actually went out of business because they specifically made things that were specifically banned by the 1994 assault weapons ban. Those guns are mentioned by name inside of this bill because research is not the strong suit of the people who put this together. Some of these things are, are legally questionable. Like, I don't even know how this would, uh, how this would work. And for example, a semi-automatic pistol is banned if it is a semi-automatic version of an automatic firearm. I don't actually know what that means. I mean, legally speaking, Glock made a fully automatic Glock 17, which was called the Glock 18. Does that mean that the Glock 17 is the semi-automatic version of an automatic firearm and therefore banned? It's incredibly fuzzy. That language was in the 1994 assault weapons ban as well, a semi-automatic version of what is also a fully automatic weapon. I don't know that that ever really got clarified in any particular legal battles. That would be a good question for uh, Matt over at Fudbusters, actually. But if you haven't figured it out already, H.R. 1808 is a huge problem. At almost every level, it is a terrible mistake. The very beginning of the bill, a bill to regulate assault weapons to ensure that the right to keep and bear arms is not unlimited and for other purposes. This bill states in its very own summary that it intends to ensure that a right that cannot be infringed upon will be infringed upon. A terrible start. And then, legally speaking, it is a mess. It has these giant loopholes that potentially can trap anybody. And then it also has tremendously long lists of guns. It specifically goes out of its way to ban the production of guns that have not been in production for decades. The argumentation for the bill on the floor has been incredibly overly emotional. And then even the factual arguments about the success of the assault weapons ban of 1994 and the success and result of this weapons ban are completely fraudulent. Right now, the conversation about the bill is again, midterm election chicken. But I should point out, status politicians and bureaucrats really do want to disarm you. They actually want this bill to pass. The fact that right now the conversation is a circus designed to bring people out to the polls should not distract us from the fact that this is an actual political agenda that people are pushing and that this bill will come back when the time is right, even if that time isn't necessarily right now. So thank you for listening to that really quick and dirty breakdown. Again, you should be subscribed to the Open Source Defense newsletter for interesting observations about stuff that is happening in politics, law, and culture related to guns. Tune in next week or the next eight or nine days if the current track record holds, and we'll be talking about something else, probably gun-related, probably politically related, because the midterms are only getting closer.